I'm grateful. And we will be going to Daniel. The mystery, this is for Mr. McClory. This is DM 13 today. Doctrine of the mystery, part 13. I ain't superstitious. The mystery in Daniel chapter 2. I haven't gone long in my preaching and teaching, if you want to call it a career, without hitting Daniel again and again and again. This time we're going to do it, but see it with a little more insight, I think. In fact, I know. Our nation today and tomorrow, and rightly so, is celebrating the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, as you know. Fleming Rutledge, in her book called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, wrote this. And I think last year I read this and I was impressed by it, so I'm glad I found it. She wrote this on page 343 of her book. Insofar as God gifted him, he did something that was engendered from a different world order altogether. He was a channel for the word, capital W, that has the power to create something that was not there before. And his followers felt that power at work among themselves. I think that's what separates the work and the ministry and the activity of Dr. Martin Luther King from so many others. They don't have that otherworldly order working for them. They're just mad. And I speak of activists across the board of all kinds today. But he had the distinct hand of God upon him. A theologian named Bayard Rustin, B-A-Y-A-R-D, R-U-S-T-I-N. He was, as Rutledge called him, an instinctive and conscious theologian. He was the strategist behind the Montgomery bus boycott and the march on Washington. And he recalls in a fairly recent book the reaction of the Ku Klux, I emphasize that second word, Klux Klan, He said, quote, they could not comprehend the new thing. And he said, they were no longer able to engender fear. Much later in the book, Rutledge wrote the following. This is on page 598, I think. And I love this. And this is going to segue into our message on the mystery. She said, certainly it is true that certain individuals have helped change the world. Martin Luther King would be a particularly striking example. Yet no person ever urged more insistently and more steadfastly that he was merely an instrument of the invisible purpose of God. Those who marched and demonstrated with him, repeatedly risking their lives, knew that they too were participating in God's plan. Human agents can administer justice up to a point, and human forgiveness can certainly and often does carry with it the power of God. 
But actual rectification, now she gets this in italic font for the next sentence here. But actual, starting at rectification, making right what has been wrong so that the wrong no longer exists is impossible for human beings. The coming of the day of the Lord, she says, the Old Testament, the new creation, which is the subject of second Isaiah, Deutero Isaiah and Paul throughout the kingdom of God, which is in the synoptic gospel, she says, and eternal life, John gospel, the new Jerusalem revelation will not be accomplished through human means, but only through the working of God. Now, in these past 41 years, I have grown in my appreciation for Dr. King and for what he did and for how he died as a legitimate martyr. And he is, he belongs to the list of martyrs. And it's true that he was a channel for the word. He was, it is true in what I admire about him and reading much about him. He understood the struggles of his own sinful nature, as we all do. And he understood that on both sides of the controversy, there was the problem of sin and that it was a line that cut through us all. And therefore, he was a very humble man. He was called by God to do what he did. And I think it's a very worthy holiday that our country celebrates. And to me, if anyone does not respect the legacy of Dr. King, they do not respect the working of God in a man and in a movement. And it is true that people recall his spirit and his movement, the movement that he was constantly attributing to God and that he had no credit for it, to me really is a model of how God works to promote true justice and true peace. And the, the reason that it was distinct, that his life and legacy is distinct, is because God used him as an instrument. And he did so effectively. But we know, and I, I want to emphasize this last point, actual rectification, which I love Rutledge's definition, making right what has been wrong so that the wrong no longer exists. Now, you're going to see an image in which a massive statue, Colossus, collapses. And the wind comes and blows the chaff, the sawdust away, as it were, from the total destruction so that it no longer exists. And you'll see that the golden head that represents Nebuchadnezzar, which is the representation of all the kingdoms of this world, being annihilated did not mean that the king himself was annihilated because we have a record of his conversion in Daniel chapter 4. So the annihilation was not of a Nebuchadnezzar the man, but of Nebuchadnezzar's oppressive power, which was linked to the oppressive enslaving power of sin. So we will see that only God can bring a rectification 
and make right what's wrong so that the wrong no longer exists. Only God can do that. And we look forward to that. That's our hope. And that's the hope that we nurture. It's the hope that we sponsor here. And we, it is the hope that it, my hope is that it becomes contagious through us. So that rectification, making right what has been wrong so that the wrong no longer exists, is impossible for human beings. And that rectification will not be accomplished through human means but only through the working of God, that principle, that twofold principle, is dramatically and apocalyptically, both in style and in disclosure, is depicted in Daniel chapter 2. I cannot emphasize the importance of Daniel chapters 2 and 7 as they are what I call primal apocalypses. And Daniel, especially chapters 2 and 7, along with the servant songs or second Isaiah was a definitely distinct prophet, which we call Deutero Isaiah. We don't know exactly what his name was, but he was a very effective prophet and teacher. Isaiah 40 verses 55. Those two passages are inestimable in their importance in the surge into the new Testament and interpreting the new Testament. And of course, especially with regard to Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so this is dramatically illustrated, and we're going to just hunker down on Daniel chapter 2, probably today and another time, or maybe two other times. The Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, which is used exclusively, or variations thereof, whether it's the Old Greek or the Theodosian type version exclusively used in Hebrews, the Septuagint, which we label as LXX. There is also a revision of it called Theodosian version, the Theodosian version. I use this. LXX was in about the third century or the second, third century BC. The Theodosian came in the first or second AD. And so, but what happened is around the time of Paul, when Paul was writing, there were variations of the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, The Masoretic text, which we call the Old Testament in the Hebrew, is highly unreliable in many places. And so I like the Septuagint translation. And the Septuagint, as it's called, is arranged differently than it is in your English Bible. It's categorized under four categories, laws first, histories, poetic books, and prophecies. Laws, histories, poetic books, and prophecies. Daniel is in the last category in that arrangement, and it is the last canonical book of that arrangement of the Septuagint. So in that sense, Daniel being the last book, the last canonical book of the Old Testament Greek translation, rounds out the Old Testament just exactly as Revelation rounds out the New Testament. And there has been much discovered about the affinity between Daniel and Revelation as apocalyptic writings. So I will argue in this next couple of passages, next couple of messages, that Daniel especially in the apocalyptic visions disclosed in chapters 2 and 7, worth reading, incidentally, worth reading carefully, 
worth reading maybe in more than one translation if you have it available to yourselves. Daniel's 2 and 7 presents the mystery of God's will. In fact, I haven't taught it this way before exactly. Those chapters present the mystery of God's will to sum up all of created reality in all of its times in Christ. Just as the book of Revelation does, which it took us 514 hours to convey. And just as Ephesians does, and indeed all of the Pauline corpus, which to me is one big apocalypse, one big apocalypse of Jesus Christ, all of Paul's writings. Consider then this English rendition of the Theodosian revision. Now, in my Bible works, and I've got the old one, seven, I think it's all the way up to 10 now, but the the Theodosian version is there along with the old Greek version. And very happily, I found out, I was almost slightly ecstatic to find out that the new English translation of the Septuagint, which is from 2007, the translator, I believe his name is McLay, he puts the old Greek of Daniel chapters one, well, at least chapter two, puts the old Greek on one column, and the second column he puts the Theodosian revision. Paul's writings resemble the Theodosian version, but that wasn't written. It may have been written around Paul's time. It may be when Paul translated, it might have been Paul's own translation of the Greek text of the Old Testament. But his perception of the mystery mostly resembled the Theodosian revision which I find always to be very, well, I think you'll see the difference in a moment when I see, when I show you this. Daniel chapter 2, and I've translated this from the Theodosian version. Please notice this and see, I want you at least to see today the nomenclature, the vocabulary similarities between the Theodosian version and what we've seen already in Ephesians. Daniel chapter 2, verse 19, and we're jumping into the middle of this text. Daniel 2.19, then the mystery, the Greek is, I'll just do the English transliteration, to mysterion, to mysterion was revealed, and guess what word that is, apocalypto, mysterion, M-Y-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, apocalypto, A-P-O-K-A-L-U-P-T-O, apocalypto, and Mysterion is the long E also. So then the mystery was revealed. Already we've got this affinity with the way Paul expresses his vocabulary. The mystery and apocalypto revealed or apocalyptically revealed. For example, we find it in Ephesians 3, 5. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. A vision of the night. And Daniel praised. There he has the word eulogeo, which is very similar to how Ephesians 1.3 hits the ground running. Blessed be God or praised be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, our Father in the heavens. So 2.19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel 
praised the God of heaven. And the God of heaven is a term that is extremely important in this vision and in the scriptures themselves. When Jesus prayed, he said, our father in the heavens, our father in heaven. Now, the Septuagint, the old Greek, which you usually see in the LXX, it's called the old Greek, says this. The mystery of the king was revealed. Now, the old Greek has a word that's not even found in the New Testament at all. It's, I'll do it in the Greek this time, ek, E-K, P-H, A-I-N, Omega O, ek, fainio. And even though that's not found in the New Testament, it's found in some of the ancient Greek writers like Herodotus and Xenophon, I believe. But the mystery here in old, the old Greek says, the mystery of the king was revealed, ek fainio, not apocalypto, revealed clearly to Daniel. Then Daniel prays, then it uses the word eulogeo, the Lord Most High. doesn't say the God of heaven, it says the Lord Most High. The same message comes across, but ek fainio is never used in the New Testament. Now, Maclay's version of this, Maclay's translation of the Theodotion, reads like this in Daniel 2.19. Then the mystery of the king was disclosed to Daniel. In the night in a vision, the matter was clearly brought to light. Then Daniel blessed the Lord Most High, and crying out, he said, forgive me, that's the old Greek, the old Greek translation. Then the mystery... Of the king was disclosed to Daniel. In the night in a vision, the matter was clearly brought to light. Then Daniel blessed the Lord Most High and crying out, he said, etc. Now, Maclay, M-C-L-A-Y, Maclay's translation of the Theodotian version, which is what I go by, reads this way. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now, you're not going to get it wrong if you read the old Greek. But I think Paul more read the Theodotian or something like the Theodotian version because you see it reflected in all of Paul's writings. It's pretty plain to see that the language of some variation of the Greek text that resembled the Theodotian version, it's called that because a man named Theodosius revised it in 1st or 2nd century A.D. It's plain that some version of it or some development of that translation was extant and adopted by Paul, and it's even possible that Paul himself translated the already available Greek text for his own purposes, which he was certainly able to do. And especially because this word ekphanio is not found in The New Testament, it's found in military historians like Xenophon and Herodotus. It's what I would call a very good apocalyptic word, like apocalypto, and like phanerao, which we see elsewhere in the scriptures and throughout the New Testament. In fact, I think it's related. I just want to take a little time on these words because nomenclature is extremely important to me. There's a lot of drifting going on today, especially among Christians who call themselves universalists. They're drifting into a strange versions of mysticism. And the only, re- the only way not to drift is to stay with the word, to stay with the scriptures, 
especially an accurate exegesis of them like we're doing in this assembly. That is emphatic. We're going to be doing a study of the drifter, and that's coming up in Hebrews more, but as Hebrews 2.1 indicates, don't drift. Drifters might be romantic in Westerns, but not in the scriptures, not in the Bible. And so it's pretty plain to see by the wording in the Theodosian that that's what made it into, or variations thereof, into the New Testament. This word ekphanyo does have a word that's related to it, though, and it's epiphanyo. Same central word here, phanyo, epiphanyo. Now, that was where we get the word epiphany, for example. The epiphany of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ in Titus 2.13, for which we wait with tiptoe anticipation. He's not going to come necessarily and walk on water in Washington, D.C., like the Netflix series Messiah did, but he's going to be seen for every eye to see. It's an interesting series, incidentally, but only from the standpoint that scriptures pop in your mind when you watch it. Epiphanyo is used in Titus 2.11, most importantly, where it says, for the grace of God appeared, epiphanyo, the grace of God appeared. And you know what then it says? Then it says, very simply, salvation for all humankind. That's all it says. It doesn't say bringing salvation, offering salvation, It says, the grace of God appeared, epiphanyo, once and for all, it appeared in the crucified Christ, of course. And then all it says is, soteria and panta anthropos, salvation for all. And people who cannot cotton to this always say, oh, it means bringing salvation Offer. It doesn't say bringing. It doesn't say offering. It says the grace of God appeared, salvation for all human beings. That's it. And that doctrine teaches us to deny all ungodliness and live soberly, righteously, and justly in this world, waiting for the appearance, epiphania, the verbal, the noun form of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, epiphanyo. The Theodosian revision chose apocalypto and not epiphanyo. It chose apocalypto. We see that everywhere, Paul. Apocalypto. In fact, a book was named after that word. The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ by John, the beloved disciple, at least in my view. So the Theodosian revision and Paul evidently read some early development similar to that version because he uses apocalypto in Ephesians 3, 5 for the revelation of the mystery. And he uses it in Galatians 1, 16 with regard to how he received the gospel by an apocalypse. Now, Bernard Lonergan, now a lot of people I've read don't. They stop at the mystery and say, the mystery is interesting, or the mystery is this, or the mystery is that. Or they'll even say, the mystery is kind of a mystery. 
And what we're doing is hammering down just what that mystery is. It's extraordinarily important in Paul and in throughout all the scriptures. Now, even Bernard Lonergan observed that the word musterion is a Greek word which, quote, has been used to translate a Hebrew conception of Persian origin. And he cited an article by Karl Prum, P-R-U-M-M, entitled Mystère, in a French book called Supplement du Dictionnaire de la Bible, which is, I think, way, written in 1960. And that's where Karl Prum said, mystery means the secret counsel of a king. The secret counsel of a king. Now we got Martin Luther, king. We've got a king, and we're soon going to see the king of heaven. You know what Nebuchadnezzar called Daniel's God after his conversion, after seven years of eating grass like a cow? He wakes up, humbled. He calls him the God of heaven, a God of gods, a Lord of lords, a king of kings, the king of heaven. And so, it says, mystery means the secret counsel of a king, and it is in that sense, says Prume, fundamentally, that it is employed in the New Testament. So one can see, and this is me, one can see how the idea of, that the mystery was the secret counsel of a king, you can see how that might be the idea by its use in the old Greek text, of Daniel chapter 2, verse 19, though the Theodosian revision doesn't have the reference to the king. So one would assume that Daniel received the secret that King Nebuchadnezzar was keeping. Now, that was a tricky thing. He had this disturbing dream on his bed, which is a word for marriage bed, and probably had many wives, but he was asleep, and he had this vision, and it disconcerted him. It actually made him have almost like a psychotic break. He was totally anxious about this vision. He knew that it had some import that he could not get a hold of, kind of like the Ku Klux Klan seeing this new thing. He didn't know what to do with it. And so he told his counselors, his magicians, and his spiritual advisors, he had a whole passel of them, he said, I want you, first of all, to tell me what I did dream. I'm not even going to tell you what the dream is. I want you to tell me what I dreamed, the details in it. Then I want you to interpret the dream. And if you don't, I'm going to cut you to pieces and turn your houses into a garbage dump. Okay? And this reached Daniel. And Daniel spoke to Arioch, who was the king's hitman. He was going to send the king, the king's hitman, Arioch, to execute every one of his advisors, all of them, not only cut them to ribbons, but kill his family and turn their houses into what he called a dung heap. So Daniel goes to Arioch, this prime assassin of the king, and he kind of, he's kind of befriended him, and he said, look, would you go tell, please, beg Nebuchadnezzar not to kill all of his advisors, and some of them are my friends, Jewish advisors, don't Please don't cut them to ribbons and turn their homes into dung heels until you give me a little bit of time. I'm going to appeal upwards here for this. So not only did Daniel get the vision, he got every detail of the dream and everything that made the king upset, but he also interpreted it and basically said, as we're going to see, and I'm just 
kind of summarizing it in advance. You just saw everything that's going to happen at the end of time. Every, not some. You just saw everything that's going to happen in the end of the days. Everything. That's what you saw. That's why it shook you up a little. And when he laid out every detail of the dream and then interpreted it, the king said, whoa, I'm promoting you. And I like your God. I like your God. He started to, but then of course, in the next chapter, he builds a vision like he sees in the dream, only it's not four different types of metals. It's all gold. And he's the gold. And he wants everybody to kowtow and bow down. Three guys don't, as you know. So it takes a lot to convert a man of such profound arrogance. But it, God did it. But let's just pick up where we left off a little bit here. So this secret counsel of the king, I think, is workable as a definition. One would assume that Daniel received the secret that King Nebuchadnezzar was keeping from all his advisors. But upon reflection, the real mystery of the king that Daniel discovered was the mystery of none other than he whom, after a profound conversion, Nebuchadnezzar himself would call Daniel 4.37, the king of heaven. This is important. The mystery that was disclosed to Daniel in a vision at night was more than just the answer to a riddle, the King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. What did I dream? What's it mean? Tell me or you're dead, and so is your family, and your house is a dung heap. That's what happens to people with not too much power, too much arrogance. Power doesn't corrupt. Arrogance corrupts. Absolute power doesn't corrupt because God is absolute power. That's a stupid saying. Lord Acton, he's not the Lord of Lords. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Let's quote that. Power doesn't corrupt. The power of God raised Jesus from the dead. Power doesn't corrupt when you have it. Power doesn't corrupt. Arrogance corrupts. Absolute power doesn't corrupt. Absolute power is only God's power. So, so much for that saying that everybody wants to pull out and quote. I don't know if you've heard it quoted. Lord Acton. Well, la di. You know that German ice cream. La di frickin' das or whatever it's called. Anyways. Okay, you got it. All right. It was the disclosure of what he saw was the disclosure of what we call the mystery in toto, which is the secret counsel of a king, all right, the secret counsel of the king of heaven, and it's all about his son, Jesus Christ. It was the apocalyptic disclosure of the mystery of God's will. See if this doesn't sound familiar to you. The mystery of God's will to sum up everything in the heavens and on earth in Jesus. That's what this vision was about, as we'll see. So it's my aim today, and we'll do it in maybe another session, to show that this is yet another example of how the mystery was silent in the writings of the prophets 
For ages, it was silent, but is now openly manifested. One of the first things I remember, my Aunt Peggy and my mom, when they used to talk, they get together and they talked a lot. But one of the sayings I used to pick up from when they talked is, I haven't seen you in ages, or I haven't seen her in ages. And they always said, in ages, which is a little bit of a, a poetic hyperbole. But here... The mystery was silent for ages, means hundreds and hundreds of years. The Old Testament was read, but nobody could see or hear the mystery in it. Now we can. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the time of provocation when they provoke God in the wilderness, because we are wilderness wanderers in a different way. But now it's not silent. There's two words that describe it in the Old Testament. Silent in Romans 16, 25 Hidden in Colossians 1.26 and Ephesians 3.9. Hidden from sight, silent to the hearing. But now you hear it and you see it. And so the stone cut out without hands that strikes this image on the toes of clay and iron, causing the collapse of the image, not just the collapse, but the making of it not to be. It turns into just little dust particles, and then the wind, speaking of the Holy Spirit, comes and blows the dust particles away, so the evil doesn't even exist anymore. It's the rendering of the powers that compete with God's grace to nothing. And we'll see how this unfolds as we go. And so it's my aim today, and in another session, maybe next Sunday, maybe not, to show that this is yet another example of how the mystery was silent in the writings of the prophets, including Daniel. Jesus called Daniel a prophet in Matthew 24, 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stationed in the place where it ought not be, and that's speaking of A.D. 67, 66 and 67, where it was fulfilled, then let the reader understand Matthew 24, 15. He said specifically, Daniel, the prophet. Daniel's writings are a part of the writings of the prophets. In the writings of the prophets, the mystery was silent for hundreds of years, but is now speaking up. The stone cut out without hands is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It strikes the toes right when Jesus is interviewed by Caiaphas of Israel, the clay, and Pontius Pilate of Rome, the iron. Right at that place... And they call for his crucifixion. They call for his death. And that was their undoing, the undoing of the final power. And the destruction of the toes caused the destruction of all the kingdoms of this world so that the two witnesses in Revelation say the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and our Christ, the Lord and his anointed. All hints of things to come. In fact, if I give away any more of this, I won't have to do another message. So the word silent in the writings of the prophets for ages, here's another apocalyptic verb, is now openly manifested. And that word is another very important, probably almost as important as apocalypto, phan-er-a-o, P-H-A-N-E-R-O, omicron-o, phan-er-a-o, which means to be manifested openly manifested, clearly manifested. It's related also to our word gnorizo, which we looked at very recently, gnorizo. 
to make known. And so this word, phanerao, another good apocalyptic word, and it's found in places like Romans 3.21, where the great pivot happened in the epistle of Romans. 2 Corinthians 4.10 and 11, 2 Corinthians 5.10, 5.11, it's used twice, Ephesians 5.13 and 14, Colossians 1.26, where it's used twice, 1 Timothy 3.16, a profoundly important verse of the mystery, 2 Timothy 1.10, Titus 1.3, Hebrews 9.26, 1 Peter 1.20 and 5.4, 1 John 3.2, twice, 1 John 4.9, Revelation 15.4, compared again with Romans 3.21. You'll have this in print, so don't get anxious. And so this word phanerao reveals that the mystery that was hidden and silent in the writings of the prophets, including Daniel, are now manifested clearly to be taught by New Testament teachers, as you know. So let's consider a few verses in Daniel where vocabulary is strikingly similar to Paul's. So I want to present a somewhat broad outline just how Ephesians 1, 9 to 10 is manifested in Daniel 2 in the king's dream and in Daniel's interpretation of that dream And once again, by doing this, to illustrate that this is another example of the mystery manifested in the writings of the prophets, as we saw it manifested in Jacob's dream in Genesis 28, 12, compared with John 151 and hundreds of other verses. Again, now let's look at Daniel 2.19. This will be my translation from the Theodosian version of the Greek, which seems to be, or something like it, what Paul read and what was in Paul's mind and in Paul's heart when he wrote or dictated Ephesians. Daniel chapter 2, verse 19. Then the mystery, Tomasterion, was revealed, apocalypto, to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel praised, eulageo, Ephesians 1, 3, the God of heaven, our Father who art in heaven, the Father who laid up all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, the king of heaven in 437. Look at it goes on in verse 20. And Daniel said, blessed is the name of God from the ages into the ages. Sometimes they say forever and ever. The old Greek says it that way, but the new Greek or the Theodosian gets it more clearly. From the ages to the ages. Then he says wisdom. That's the word Sophia, which is found in Romans 16.27 and Ephesians 1.8. He has abounded toward us in wisdom, Sophia, making known to us the mystery of his will, which is to sum up everything in Christ. So that's the word Sophia is used as it is in 1.8 of Ephesians and Romans 6.27. And insight are his Now, I translate that boldly by saying insight and wisdom are his, meaning to give. They are his to give. And because he's a gracious God, he loves to give wisdom in James 1.5. So, so far, my translation reads this way, not to confuse you. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel praised the God of heaven. And Daniel said, blessed is the name of God from ages and into from the ages and into the ages. Wisdom and insight are his to give. Then he says he brings change of seasons. 
That's more than just summer, spring, winter, and fall. That's a change in historical epochs. He brings about changes, and he's going to bring about a phenomenal change at the parousia of Jesus Christ, a change of the ages and times. And so he says he changes times or seasons. That's kairos, which is used in Ephesians 1.10, the dispensation of the fullness of the kairos or times. And then he says, and times, chronos. He uses kairos and chronos for times. And that's what he uses in Acts 3.21. When Peter says, the times of the apokatastasis panton, the times of the restoration of all things. Kairos is related to the summation of all things in all of its times. Kronos is used even to the redemption of history, the redemption of time itself, diachronically, all the way from the beginning, all summed up in Christ. So let me repeat verse 20. Daniel said, blessed is the name of God from ages unto ages, into the ages, wisdom and insight are his to give. And he brings changes of seasons and times. He appoints kings and removes them. And Brian's message had to do with the removal of the king or the prince of the power of the air, which happened at the cross. When Jesus was enthroned, Satan was dethroned. Now is the prince of this world deposed from his kingdom, from his princedom. And if I am lifted up, I will draw all to myself, meaning away from him to me, for example. He gives wisdom to the wise. Well, let me finish this. He appoints kings and removes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and intelligence to those who know insight. In other words, if you already have insight, because you're pursuing it through continuing the word, God rewards you with more insight, more intelligence, more insight. To him that has, more shall be given. Get it? Proverbs 1.5, he reveals more to those with wisdom. And so if you stay in the word, you're going to be all right. But if you stray from the word, you'll be with the herd a drifting herd, that you'll hear messages from these people. There's never a reference to any verse. There's only a reference that God loves you and wants to prosper you. And it's not right if you're not being prospered, and you should feel very insecure if you're going through adversity and that kind of stuff. And mysticism, where they quote Khalil Gibran more than Paul, and, a, and kind of like a scientism mixed with a mysticism, and it's all drifting, drifting. Drifting. Here, we're going to stick with the word. We're going to scrutinize words in the Bible. We're going to stick with the scriptures, and I mean the canonical books of the scriptures. And that's what we're doing here. We continue in the word. If we don't, we're not disciples. If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you will then know the truth. How? By continuing in my word. Not by admitting something that you didn't admit before, although that's important sometimes, but by continuing in my word. You will be, you'll know the truth because the truth is embodied in Jesus. And that's the truth that liberates. So let's continue. 
Verse 22, he reveals Apocalypto. What's he do? God, what do you do? I reveal. Apocalypto. What do you reveal? Deep and hidden things. Things you don't get in books. Things you don't get in college. Things you don't get in university. Deep and hidden things, like 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 12. The deeper things of God, which the spirit of God searches and knows. And the spirit of man searches and knows the deep things of a man. God, the spirit, searches the deep things of God. And he lets you know the things that are freely given to you by God. Those are deep things. He reveals deep and hidden, hidden, Ephesians 3, 9, Colossians 1, 26. And silent, Romans 16, 25, things. He knows what's in the darkness, And how many times, Pastor Brown, have you been in the darkness when you're told you're going to speak? How many times have you been in the darkness? How many times have we been in the darkness? And God knows what's in the darkness. And he reveals hidden things of the darkness in Isaiah 45, 3. So he takes his servant through dark times because with him is light. God is hidden. And he hides in a cloud, and he hides in darkness. So if you're in darkness, you're destined to find him there. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light is with him. This is all praise from Daniel. That's why the prayers that Pastor Brown prays, for example, and he pays attention to what he's praying. These are, this is a prayer of Daniel. These are the most important things. Speaking, it's one thing for me to speak to you on behalf of God. It's another thing to speak to God in prayer on behalf of you. So prayer is so important. And he says here, he goes on to say, he knows what's in the darkness and the light is with him. Look at verse 23. I acknowledge and praise you, O God of my ancestors, because you have given me wisdom and power. Both the wisdom and the power of God are Christ. In First Corinthians one twenty four, and now here it is. Guess what? You have made known to me norizo keyword last week or some other time recently what we requested from you. He and his friends prayed. Let us know what this vision is. Tell us the mystery. And he says it again. You have made known norizo to me the vision of the king. The vision of the king. You've let me know it. And there's a double entendre here. The vision of the king, what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. But more than that, the vision of the king of heaven in his son. Norizo then is used in Ephesians 1.9, Ephesians 3.3, Ephesians 3.5. For God making known the mystery to us. That's the first use of it. Secondly, Norizo is used to... By God making known to Paul by an apocalypse or a revelation, the mystery. Thirdly, it's used for God making known to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit, the mystery. Fourthly, it's used in 310 for God making known of the incredibly versatile wisdom. That's the word translated. The incredibly versatile wisdom of God making it known to the heavenly rulers the principal angels via the church. The pastors and teachers of the church teach. The rulers in the heavens learn because they too are involved in the redemption. 
that Jesus Christ wrought in the cross. Fifthly, it's used in Ephesians 6.19, norizo, used for Paul making known the mystery of the gospel when he opens his mouth to speak. That's my prime prayer request I ask for you. When I open my mouth to speak, may I make known the mystery of the gospel as I ought to. And that's what Paul says in 6.19. Then in 6.21, it's used in a more mundane sense, Narizzo, when Paul said, Tychicus will make known to you, the the readers of this epistle, how and what I'm doing, Paul said. So that's more of a mundane use of it. All of this corresponds to the fact that God has abounded to us in grace with all wisdom and insight by making known to us the mystery of his will. I'm reading now, reading right from Ephesians 1.9, according to his benevolent intention, which he intended in him, Christ, for the administration, verse 10 of Ephesians 1, of his household in the fullness of times to gather and sum up all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. I saw this vision until I saw a stone cut out without hands and it struck the toes and it caused the collapse and then the wind came and blew away the chaff of that whole powerful kingdom of oppressive kingdoms and the stone became a mountain and it filled the whole earth. What? Christ fills up everything with himself. He ascends to the heavens only after he descends from heaven to the lower part of the earth that he might fill everything, the earth and the heaven, with himself. That's the mystery. The stone becoming a mountain is the same as the stone that the builders rejected, and it becomes the cornerstone that is the whole temple, and the whole temple is the whole universe filled up with Christ. I saw no temple in it, the new heavens and the new earth, because the Lamb himself was the temple. He is the whole of the universe, comprising it all of himself and the God of the universe. And so... The mountain that he becomes is the mountain upon which all the nations come to feast on the bread of life and drink the wine of the new creation, the new wine, all of humanity. So it's all in there. Ephesians 4.10, Ephesians 1.21.22. So in closing, we will consider how this occurs by scrutinizing the vision, perhaps, And maybe I'm saying what we're going to do and God's saying, no, you're not going to do that. I don't know. Because maybe we're already doing it. I kind of gave away the store this morning. But if we look at it in details, it might be also important. For the vision is dynamic and dramatic. But first I want to give him one more crack at the language of Daniel in Daniel 2. Let's jump down to 28. This time he's talking to the king. He's pretty bold. He's not starstruck by the king. He's polite and he's courteous. He's not arrogant like people are toward figures of power today. He's not arrogant about it. And neither was Dr. King arrogant about figures in power. He was more like Christ. But this is how Daniel said, verse 2. But there is a God in heaven. There it is again. Our Father in heaven, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heaven in Christ Jesus. But he goes on and he says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. One of the things he loves to do, reveal. Uh, You know what the phrase says? Apocalyptone musteria. (laughs) Crazy. 
I'm just hysteria about Musteria, who reveals mysteries. And he has made known. Whoa, Norizo again. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what must come to pass in the last days. Now, if we read Hebrews like we're doing on Wednesdays, what does it say? God has spoken to us in his son in these last days. Tone hameron to tone. These last days. Daniel says, you're seeing what's going to happen in the last days. And Hebrews opens with God has spoken to us in his son in these last days. The last days of Nebuchadnezzar's dream are these last days in which you are sitting or standing or whatever you're doing here. Not hardening your heart as you hear what the Spirit is saying. Then Daniel said this, your dream and the visions in your head, this reminds me of that Santa Claus poem, visions of sugar plums danced in their head. Well, this is, He says, the dream and the visions, the way he said it is literally in your head upon your bed, are as follows. O king, verse 29, as you lay on your bed, I love this, you saw everything that must happen at the end of the days. You saw the whole thing, buddy. And the revealer, that he calls God that, to apocalyptone. God himself is the revealer. And the revealer, apocalyptone musteria, the revealer of mysteries, has made known, gonorizo again, to you what is about to happen. As for me, this sounds like Dr. King, not me, I'm just an instrument. Daniel said, as for me, this mystery, to musterion, was not revealed, apocalypto, by any wisdom that I have more than any living beings. But in order to, oh man, I'm tired of this word, make known, gnorizo, the interpretation to the king so that you may come to understand the thoughts of your heart. You have no idea what you're thinking about here, king. You're thinking about everything that's going to happen in the end. So our second task, this will give us tracks to run on, my overused metaphor, is to translate the actual vision. Maybe we'll do it next week. Maybe we won't. I really, I defer to the God of heaven on this. He's my king, and I'm his servant, gladly. Our second task is to translate the actual vision that the king had, and that Daniel both saw, interpreted, and thirdly, reported. So our third task will be to show how this mystery is none other than exactly the mystery of the king of heaven about Jesus Christ and him crucified, which we have called USSJC, the Universal Saving Significance of Jesus Christ, and the U-R-R-R-I-C, which is the universally rectifying, redemptive, and reconciling impact of the cross, which one word describes as instauration.
the vision of the mystery of the king of heaven illustrates powerfully that indeed, again, to use in closing what I opened with, actual rectification, making right what has been wrong so that the wrong no longer exists, is impossible for human beings, but will be, not be accomplished through human means, but only through the working of God. He can use you as an instrument. He can use you and does as a participant in this redemption of history, which is what we're teaching on Wednesdays. The utter annihilation of the oppressive authority of this world so that it no longer exists and never will again. And the rectification of all that has gone wrong is an act of God in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. In Christ who strikes the toes becomes a mountain in the Holy Spirit who blows away the chaff. Just like he blew away the ice so you could get here. And it's all done through two divine missions. The mystery of God kept silent for ages in the writings of the prophets, including the prophet Daniel, now speaks up. No more silence. No more whispering in the closet. Now shouting from the housetops. That which Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and that which Daniel saw, interpreted and reported is all about a stone cut out without hands that demolishes the kingdoms of this world. But he doesn't demolish it in a way that destroys. For again, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the head of gold that turned into chaff and was blown away, the person Nebuchadnezzar was converted and entered a threefold, in fact, he's a model of a threefold conversion, an intellectual conversion, whereby people leave the world of immediacy where everything's about them and enter into a world mediated by meaning, the meaning of the word, the meaning of God's plan. A moral conversion whereby we substitute personal satisfactions, we, we take personal satisfactions and put them aside and substitute those with values. We make decisions and we make life decisions based on values like Philippians 4.8, not our own personal satisfactions. When you get a society of people only functioning in their own personal satisfactions, you get anarchy. Every person does what's right in their own eyes and you have total destruction of a national entity. The third conversion that which Lonergan called religious conversion, which I call spiritual conversion, is the gift of God's love poured out in the heart, whereby Nebuchadnezzar himself said that he praised the king of heaven. He loved God. Now, he himself, his power was destroyed because it was the power, the apocalyptic power of the enslaving sin and death but Nebuchadnezzar was saved so was Darius the Persian so was Xerxes the bad guy on the 300 movie 
So is Julius Caesar. Yeah, on and on it goes, yeah. So that which Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and that which Daniel saw, interpreted, reported, and reported is all about a stone cut out without hands that demolishes the kingdoms of this world, after which the wind blows away the chaff that remains. That stone becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. And we will show if if we're permitted to do this again, maybe sooner, maybe later, that this is none other than the mystery of God's will, which he made known to us and is through this series. According to his benevolent intention, which he intended in him, in Christ, for the administration of his own household in the fullness of times, at the end of the times, to gather and sum up all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. This vision, like the dream of Jacob in Genesis 28, is a stark, poetic, metaphorical, apocalyptic disclosure of the vision of the universally saving significance of one Jesus Christ and of the universal, redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying influence of his death, his burial, and his exaltation via resurrection. Thank you, Father. We have seen Jesus again. We, we come here with the request we would see Jesus. We leave with the thanksgiving that we have seen him once again in your word. May we continue in your word, Father, for there's no way to keep from being deceived or to be tossed to and fro and made seasick by every wind of doctrine unless we're stabilized by your word and by the scriptures, but not the scriptures alone, the scriptures as they reveal Jesus Christ, your son, the scriptures as they speak and testify of him. May that be our ongoing theme as a phalanx of believers advancing as citizens, soldiers of heaven in Christ. And we ask this in his name.